Well, praise God for that reminder that we can pray to God anytime, anywhere, about anything. There's a little prayer book. I forget the title right now, but it's written by Nancy Guthrie, and it's a book for children and uh, teaching them how to pray. And that's one of the things it says is that we can pray anytime, anywhere, about anything. Praise God for that. We come to Him collectively today and Essentially, all that we're doing is, is a prayer to God as we, as we affirm our faith together, as we actually pray, as we preach and listen to preaching, and as we go through the Lord's Supper. All of this is an act of prayer to God as we consider Him in our hearts. So let me just start by saying Happy Mother's Day to those of you who are mothers. This, uh, we wanted to make sure this was a Mother's Day you would never forget, and so there you go. Um, it's incredible uh, how these things happen. It is a reminder, though, that how blessed we are that that's, uh, that's all we have to face, you know, and, and I, I know that many have faced, even, even in our country, uh, worse things, but there are people all over the world who are gathering today to worship our Lord who are facing the potential of being arrested or, or killed or all other sorts of things gathered together with far more discomforts than we just face. So we praise God that... Uh, That he is with them and he is with us this morning, teaching us things by all of his, uh, all of the providence that guides us, all the things that happen to us in our lives. But happy Mother's Day to those of you. I pray that you will have a a wonderful day, whether your family's here with you or not. You know, maybe you're here today um, and you're not going to have your kids with you today. But this would be an, an amazing opportunity just to reflect on the gift that God has given you in being a mother. Well, today is part two of a set of sermons on Genesis 25, verses 19 to 34. So if you would go ahead and go there for me, please. Genesis 25, 19 to 34. And the title of this sermon, this set of sermons, is The Next Generation. And as I said last week, we have now moved to the next generation. We looked at Father Abraham for a long, long time, for a while, and now we've moved to the next generation which in one sense means we have moved to Isaac. As we talked about last week, we're now going to move into a period that introduced Isaac, and then we'll have 10 chapters later, Isaac's death. So we know that Isaac is the banner figure. He's the big idea over the course of these chapters. But more importantly, we've moved on to the generation even after that. We've moved on to Jacob. Jacob is the father of the Jewish nation, And he will be the focus of the remainder of the book of Genesis. That's one thing that's always fascinated me is once you get to Joseph, Joseph really does appear to become the focus. But we realize when we get to the very end of Genesis that the focus is still very much on Jacob. And that what God was doing in the life of Joseph was really his faithfulness to Jacob, the patriarch. So that's coming down the road. We passed over the halfway point here, so we are continuing now into the back half of the book of Genesis. And here in this passage, chapter 25, verses 19 to 34, we get what I called last week five introductory pointers. These are five things that point us forward in the, the narrative of Genesis as a whole, but, but especially in the next 10 chapters. They are pointing us forward. They are setting up especially the relationship between Jacob and Esau, these two brothers who are sons of Isaac. 
And last week, we looked at the first three of these five introductory pointers. So let me just say a brief word about those by way of review and introduction for what we're going to do today. We looked at first the barrenness, that the God of Abraham will also be the God of Isaac and Jacob. Rebecca is barren just as Sarah was. And that reminds us, barrenness itself becomes a way for us to remember the faithfulness of God to Abraham and Sarah. And now we have barrenness again, and that's another opportunity for God to show his faithfulness, his promises, his covenant-keeping care. As with Abraham, God hears, God remembers, he tests, and he creates. He did that in the life of Abraham, and he will do that in the life of Isaac, and he will do that in the life of Jacob. And so the barrenness points us forward in that way. It points us forward to the faithful God who will be faithful unendingly as the narrative unfolds. So that's first the barrenness. We also looked at the battle. There's this little battle going on in Rebekah's womb between uh, Jacob and Esau. And it shows that there will be tension between these two brothers and that the younger will end up on top. God has chosen Jacob over Esau. And one of the ways we started last week and ended with last week was the fact that God creates and God chooses. These are two big ideas of Scripture, that God is the creator. And in fact, as we come to know God, we come to know him uh, in, in a big way as creator and redeemer. And we saw that last week as the creator God, the one who spoke all into existence in those first In that first chapter of Genesis, we saw him bring life into Rebekah's womb. But we also saw that before the world began, before these two children were conceived, God chose one over the other. Now, this is an incredibly foreign idea to us living in our, uh, what we would consider to be fair, uh, egalitarian society, individualistic society, this idea of God actually choosing one over another is so foreign to us, and I would even suggest repulsive to us. But it is what the text here clearly shows. And Paul, in Romans 9, as we saw last week, helps us understand how we ought to read this divine election. So we saw the battle. God creates, God elects. And then we saw the birth. The boys are born and Jacob comes out holding Esau's heel. This incredible picture of this little tiny infant hand holding on to his brother's uh, excessively hairy heel as he's coming out of the womb. This prepares us, of course, for the fact that he will overtake his brother and that he will do so by deception grabbing the heel. And this, of course, sets the stage for the rest of the narrative. So you can go back and listen to last week as a way to understand more what we're doing today. But that was last week. We looked at the barrenness, the battle, and the birth. Today we come to the last two introductory pointers, and they are one, the bias, and two, the birthright. And we get these from verses 27 to 34, which is what we'll be focusing on today. Verse 27 tells us that we've now transitioned 
to adulthood. So in the space of really half of a chapter, we've gone from uh, Rebecca not being able to conceive to conceiving to the little boy's battling it out in the womb to coming out, being born, and now we fast forward it all the way to adulthood. As verse 27 says, when the boys grew up. So now we're going to be looking at Jacob and Esau as adults. So if you would please go ahead and stand with me for the reading of God's word. We're going to read the whole passage. This is verses 19 to 34. But of course, today, as I said before, we'll be looking at verses 27 down to 34. This is God's word. These are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham fathered Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean, of Paddan Aram, the sister of Laban, the Aramean, to be his wife. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife. Because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah his wife conceived. The children struggled together within her, and she said, If it is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord. And the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. When her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak. So they called his name Esau. Afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel. So his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. And now our text for today. When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man dwelling in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Once, when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stew, for I am exhausted. Therefore, his name was called Edom. And Edom sounds like the word red. So that's the relation there. Red, stew, and Edom. Verse 31, Jacob said, sell me your birthright now. Esau said, I am about to die. What use is a birthright to me? Jacob said, swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew. And he ate and drank and rose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. If you would, go ahead and be seated. This really is a, a pivotal story. It's so, uh, it's so rich and it's vivid in many ways of, of uh, what we'll cover today. Let's pray and ask for the Lord's blessing on our time and that he would give us wisdom and give us attentive ears and attentive hearts to receive his word and let what the Holy Spirit intends for us here to settle in a heavy way upon each of our, our souls. Our Father in heaven, we are grateful for this time to gather together. We are grateful for the Holy Scriptures, copied 
for thousands of years so that we could sit here this morning and be changed by them. Lord, we're reminded of Paul and his words to Timothy as he says to him that he has from childhood been taught the sacred writings which are able to make us wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. And to know, Father, that Paul there was referring to largely to the Old Testament scriptures, that these, this very story, these stories are not just Bible stories. They're not moral lessons. They, they have much morality in them, Father. Much to teach us about character. Much to teach us about wisdom. But they are a story of your redemptive purposes in and through Christ. And they make us wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. We thank you that these precious scriptures are your means of salvation. They are your means of drawing us towards Christ-likeness. And so we sit here this morning underneath your word and we pray that you would use it, that this would not be in vain. I know that some of us this morning undoubtedly are are tired, distracted, maybe quite excited about what's coming this afternoon and tempted to not be here now. Father, would you be merciful to us and help us be here now? In this moment, before your face, under your word. And we pray for our children who are learning about you in the back. We pray that they would trust Christ today. That today would be the day of salvation for them. We pray that you would protect them from an Esau-like life. We pray that you would give them your grace. We know, God, that unless you turn the light on in their hearts, they will remain in darkness. And so we ask you. We plead with you, Father, on behalf of our children, whom you have graciously given to us, sovereignly given to us, we pray that you would be merciful in saving them. We pray that you'd be merciful in saving some among us this morning who have no true knowledge of Christ, who have not come to receive eternal life, who do not know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Father, we pray that today you would shine the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ into their hearts. And that in formlessness and darkness, you would say, let there be light. Father, we thank you that you do this because you are abounding in love. You are gracious and kind and merciful, forgiving sins. And we come before you this morning believing these things about you as you have revealed yourself in your word. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. So we begin this morning with our fourth point from last week, and that is the bias. And if you would, look with me as we dig in a little deeper to verses 27 to 28. 27 to 28. When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man, dwelling in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. When Rebekah had asked the Lord what was going on inside of her womb, the beginning of God's response is what we read in verse 23. God says to her, two nations are in your womb. 
and two peoples from within you shall be divided. Now we know, we discussed last week, this will go on and be quite a division, quite a tension, quite a conflict between these two boys. And of course, between the nations of Israel and Edom. But this division between them is evident even here in their differences. That's, that's what's interesting. Is we're getting already a hint as they become adults. Before you see any tension as adults, we're getting a hint already of the division that exists between them in their very differences. They are divided, as one commentator puts it, in temperament and vocation. Very different guys. And maybe as a parent, you know, even today as you reflect as a mother, you can reflect on the differences in your own children. And maybe uh, the differences here in your sons, that children are different in temperament and they go on to be different in vocation. But this is very, a very specific case of difference, of distinction, of division between these two men. Esau is described as a skillful hunter, a man of the field, whereas Jacob is described as a quiet man dwelling in tents. In other words, Esau is an avid hunter, an outdoorsman. He's kind of like Bear Grill. He's out in the woods. He's, maybe he's eating snails, I don't know. But he's out in the woods. He's a, he's a roughing it kind of person. He's the kind of person maybe today who would like to hunt or, or fish or camp. Uh, endlessly. That's just what you live for. This is the kind of person that Esau was. While Jacob is a settled man. He's a domestic man. He is in the tents. This is a big difference. The word translated here as quiet is actually a little difficult to nail down since it normally carries the idea of perfect or complete. So when the text tells us that Jacob was a quiet man, that's in Hebrew, that word is hard to translate. And the different translators, they deal with this in, in various ways. So for example, it's been translated content, even-tempered, or plain, in addition to quiet. It's a, it's a difficult word to deal with. We know that the text is not describing him as, as perfect or complete in a, in a moral sense. We see that with Jacob as the story unfolds. But it, there is some kind of completeness to this man that puts him in distinction from his brother Esau. Alan Ross describes the difference between the two men in this way. The aggressive hunter... Versus the reflective nomad. Esau is the sportsman, rough, wild, free, boisterous, and exciting. Jacob is the settled man, stable, quiet, thoughtful, and civilized. Very different guys. And these differences are, of course, preparing us for later developments in the narrative. And this is actually quite interesting because when you look at these differences, they are morally neutral. In and of themselves, they are morally neutral, at least on the surface. One likes to be outdoors. One is in the tents. He's more of a domestic type of person. We see this among ourselves. If we were to go around and talk with the guys in our church, we would have some guys who, who are, can, can say, here, I, that sounds more like me. Esau sounds more like me. And some who would say, well, I'm kind of more of a Jacob. So on the surface, these really are, more, these are morally neutral. Descriptions. But they point us forward to significant things. Genesis 
way back a while ago, had identified those who dwell in tents with those who have livestock, which prepares us for Jacob's interactions with his uncle Laban. So we know it's pointing us forward to Laban. We'll see Laban, the way that he cheats Jacob and the way that Jacob is caring for his flocks. It's, it's kind of pointing us forward. It's giving us a little indicator of what's to come later. But even more importantly, as a domestic herdsman, because that is essentially what Jacob is. He's a domestic herdsman. Here he is being identified with his father Isaac and his grandfather Abraham. So Jacob is like Abraham. He is like Isaac. He, is, he lives the same kind of life that his grandfather and his father lived. That's pointing us forward in the trajectory. He's on the same path so to speak, as his grandfather and his father. By contrast, the description of Esau makes him like Ishmael. Do you see that? He is like Ishmael, the rejected son. These things are going to play out in the future. He's described like Ishmael, who we are told in 2120 lived in the wilderness and became an expert with the bow. And it's interesting that later when Isaac sins, Esau out to go for a hunt to get some game for him to eat so that he can bless him. He says, take your quiver and your bow and go out. So the text here is indicating to us that, that Jacob is on an Abraham and Isaac path. Do you see what I'm saying? And that, that Esau is on an Ishmael path. Already before we get any kind of indication of the character of these men, these mere differences are pointing us forward. But even though Jacob is more like his father Isaac, it is Esau who captures the affections of his father. The text says that Esau is Isaac's favorite. Why? Verse 28, Isaac loved Esau. Listen to this. Listen to this. Because he ate of his game. Literally, it's interesting. When you read this in Hebrew, literally, it says, because of game in his mouth. That's, that's literally what it says. It's, it's beast-like. You know, that, that he loves Isaac because of game in his, in his mouth. In other words, I'll paraphrase this for you. Isaac loves one son over the other simply because of what that son can do for him. You see that? This is Isaac we're talking about, the son of Abraham, the one who goes up onto uh, there onto the hill and on the mountain, which God had told Abraham. And he, and he lets his father bind him, lets his father put him on the altar. This is, this is Isaac who prayed to the Lord about his wife, Rebekah, being barren. Nonetheless, this is a man who has partiality towards one of his sons because of what he can do. For him. This is favoritism. And as we'll see as we go on through the rest of the narrative, it is divisive and destructive. It does a number on this family. Favoritism just destroys, it ruptures this household. No one can read the story of the domestic life 
of Rebekah and Isaac and Jacob and Esau going all the way through, looking at you know, who Esau marries and what happens with Jacob when the, when the blessing is taken away and the, the tension between Esau and Jacob and the way that Rebekah incites Jacob against Isaac. This is a broken family. It's a broken family. But this is, this is the line. And that reminds us, just as Matthew chapter 1 reminds us, that the grace of God is working in the midst of broken people. This is brokenness. And as we go on, it doesn't get better. It does not get better when you get to Jacob and his four wives, and he has those kids. And what those sons do, not just selling their brother Joseph into slavery, but even before that, what they do. This is reminding us that God's grace is at work in the midst of brokenness. And that is the testimony of every Christian. It's not that we cleaned up really well, but it is that the grace of God came in the midst of our sinfulness, in the midst of our brokenness, and that God in his electing purpose did not look down in history and see us choose him and choose us on that account, but he, he broke in to sin. He broke, he busted the door open. He didn't stand at the door and knock and look in as though, uh, please let me in. Jesus is not asking, please let me in. He's not peeking through the window, hoping and hoping that you'll accept him. He slams open the door and he takes hold of your heart for his eternal glory and for your good. But what we see here is this favoritism and this chosen family. But even more, this is not just favoritism. This is favoritism for self, right? Favoritism for self. This is a form of selfishness that divides the home and embitters and disheartens our children. And we will see that later. What Jacob does to his father, Isaac. No one can read all of this and think that, that the fact that, that Isaac is, is, is fawning over Esau rather than Jacob had nothing to do with what Jacob was doing there. We see that it was Rebekah who instigated it. But Jacob is complicit. This is what favoritism does. And favoritism for self. So consider for a moment what favoritism may be doing to your family. You know, it's natural. We, we pause here for a moment. This passage is not about favoritism, but it's an element. It's part of this story. And so we pause here for a moment and we reflect and we ask ourselves the question, might this be playing out in my home? And I don't even see it. We all know that it's natural that we may tend to relate with one of our kids or some of our kids over others better. And that could be because we share interests. Maybe you're a dad who loves sports and you have two sons and one of them really loves sports and one of them has no care at all for sports, no interest. It's natural, of course, that we would have these shared interests, this shared bond of things that we like, or maybe the temperament of one child is more in line with your temperament than the other. Maybe you're more of a reflective, kind of uh, chatty type of person. You like to sit and just think, and maybe you have a child that's like that. And so that's the one you tend to gravitate towards. But here's the question we have to ask ourselves always as parents. And this is a good thing to consider on Mother's Day. 
Are you doing the hard work of leveling things out in your own heart? It may be the case, yes, that natural proclivities go in one direction rather than, a, rather than the other, which is perfectly natural. But are you doing the hard work of leveling things out in your own heart? It, it's not, parenting is always hard. It's hard every moment of every day. And there's a constant heart work and heart check and heart examination. If you're on autopilot as a parent, this just will happen. And it will tear apart the hearts of your kids. And you don't even see it. The hard work of leveling things out in your own heart and in your interactions with your kids. In the way that you spend time with them and who you spend time with and when. All of this indicates potential favoritism going on in our heart. So this is a moment for us just to pause and to reflect on this very real issue in families. So we have Isaac's bias towards Esau. But we're also told that Rebekah has her favorite. But Rebekah loved Jacob, is what the text Says, this is a divided house. This is incredible. I mean, we have, on the one hand, we have Team Esau. You know, I, I know if you, if you have, to, I grew up, there were, there were two of us, two sons, and my mom and dad, and so we would play things out in the front yard. We maybe would play ping pong up in the bonus room, or we would play football in the front yard, and it was, it was easy. It was two on two. Well, that's one thing, but this is a, a home that has two teams all the time. This is team Esau on one side and team Jacob on the other. Family unity destroyed. But the context here appears to distinguish, and catch this, it appears to distinguish Rebecca's favoritism from Isaac's favoritism. So it's one thing to say, okay, Rebecca has her favorite and and Isaac has his favorite. No, no, no. It's not just that simple. There's, There's some things in the text here, some clues that tell us this is different. These are fundamentally different. The first clue is that it is not qualified by selfish motives in the way Isaac's is. Isaac's favoritism is tied specifically to his own appetites, to what he wants out of his sons. Rebecca's receives no commentary in that regard. Although one might say that Rebecca loves Jacob more because Jacob's with her. He's in the house. He's cooking. He's cleaning. He's vacuuming. He's doing all of the things with her. So they're just bonding more, perhaps. But the text doesn't say that. What we have here is a difference. One is qualified by this selfish motive and one is not. Just a little clue. Another clue is that it is preceded by a divine oracle. This is the massive clue. The divine oracle that is in Jacob's favor. So as these two children are in her womb, God comes to her and speaks to her and gives an oracle to her. And it favors Jacob over Esau. In other words, Rebekah's favor is in line with God's revealed purposes. And we may say that does not justify her favoritism towards Jacob. And I think, of course, we would agree on that. But there's something different going on here with Rebekah. We don't know if Isaac knew the oracle, but the texts suggest that he may not have. It's an interesting question. Did Jacob know 
We don't know. It's not clear. Did Isaac know what God had said to Rebekah? What we know is what verse 23 tells us. And the Lord said to her. So we know that Rebekah was the recipient of this revelation. So now, with these differences in place, the stage is set for the next very crucial scene It is an incident and a revelation. What we're about to look at with the birthright is both an incident. See this, see this, an incident and a revelation. In other words, what we're about to read is not just an event in the life of these two boys. It is appealing back to show the heart. What we're, what the, the, the author wastes no time in showing us who Jacob is on the inside and who Esau is on the inside. And so it is a revealing of the hearts of the characters of these two men. So let's turn now to the birthright. The birthright. And as we come to this incident, this revelation, this peeling back, we can break the text up into three parts. And this is how we're going to treat this this little story here. Three parts. The circumstance, the conversation, and the conclusion. So three parts. Let's look first at the circumstance. Verse 29. Look with me there if you would. Verse 29. Once, when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field and he was exhausted. So here, we are given a picture of what was probably a a pretty typical day in the life of these two guys, these two men. One of them is occupied with domestic tasks, and Esau is out hunting game. You get the impression that this is just the norm. This is the circumstance that precedes what we're about to read. This is just normal daily life in the life of Esau and Jacob. On this particular day, Jacob is boiling some red stew, we're told. And Esau has been out on a long, unsuccessful hunt. He comes back with nothing. And in line with what we've just read, Jacob is at ease in the tent while Esau comes in, probably throwing himself down on a seat in exhaustion. That's the image you get. Jacob may be singing to himself. Who knows? He's just sitting there making some stew in the tent. And then in comes Esau and just flopping himself down on whatever it is they were sitting on there in front of his brother. So this is the circumstance. This is the setup. And then we move to the conversation. Look at verses 30 to 33. And Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stew for I am exhausted. Therefore, his name was called Edom. Jacob said, sell me your birthright now. Esau said, I am about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? Jacob said, swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Even at the very beginning of this conversation, character traits are starting to emerge about these two men. I'm not talking about at the end of this little narrative. I'm talking about the very beginning of this conversation. Character traits are starting to come to the surface. So let's just take a look at what we get from those opening lines. First, Esau's character. He is impulsive, right? Lacking forethought, ill-prepared, disorganized.
orderly, disheveled, desperate. Why is he in this state? Why is he so out of sorts? Impulsive. Secondly, we see that he is driven by his appetites. He is portrayed in an almost animal-like way. It's interesting when you see it. He, he, really is, he, he seems a bit like a beast of the field that he's just come from. He says, let me eat some of that red stew, which literally is, let me gulp down some of that red stuff. That's what he says. Let me gulp down some of that red stuff. We all know what it's like, you know, maybe we're sitting in there, we're eating, and we sit down to a meal, and we just sort of slam it down. Slam it down. And maybe someone, your wife or your mother, looks over at you and says, can you, can you, eat, can you eat like a civilized person? You know, can you eat like you are thankful that you've got this meal? Can you enjoy your food? You're just slamming it down. Like, must feel self. Must satisfy appetite. That's the image very much here that we have of Esau. Let me gulp down some of that red stuff. A beast of the field. That's the image that the text wants us to see. That's Esau. What about Jacob? Jacob's character. Well, first, he is cunning. Notice the quickness of his responses. Sell me your birthright now and swear to me now. These responses of Jacob suggest to us that this entire episode is premeditated. And it's interesting because he says now in both of them. This seems calculating. It seems planned. And this, I think, reflects even more badly on Esau because you get the impression that Jacob knew Esau's always doing this. He's always out in the field, you know, no provisions, coming in, demanding stuff, throwing himself down. It, gives, it tells us something about Esau that Jacob is able to, to so calculate and plan this thing to where he's ready. He's ready. When Esau comes in with these quick responses, Jacob is here shown to be the hunter, the skilled hunter who does get something in the end. We don't know if Jacob knew this would happen. Or how, to what extent he planned it. But it does appear to be premeditated. So he is cunning. He is also an opportunist. Jacob is taking full advantage of his brother's weakness to get what he wants. We see this with our children, right? Taking full advantage of his sibling's weakness to get what he wants. In short, Jacob is grasping the heel. That's exactly what we have going on in this little story. But the most important aspect of this conversation is what Esau says in verse 32 and what he does in verse 33. Look at those two verses. What he says in verse 32 and what he does in verse 33. Verse 32, it says, Esau said, I am about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? Well, all of the talking Esau is doing makes it abundantly obvious that he is not about to die, right? This is exaggerated. This is exaggerated language. This man is not about to fall over dead from starvation. 
And in verse 34, we see that he is able to eat, drink, rise, and go away. We know that food does not process energy in the body that quickly. It takes some time, some digestion. He's not about to die. He's just really tired and hungry and he wants some food. The appetites are raging and they need to be satisfied. We know how that feels, right? The appetites, the desires, the pleasures, raging, need to be satisfied. And most importantly here, the satisfaction of these appetites is deemed more valuable than the birthright. That's the main thing we need to see. The satisfaction of this hunger, the satisfaction of these appetites, more valuable, more weighty, has more glory. The word glory in the Old Testament is from the word weighty. This this satisfaction of appetites has more glory for Esau than this birthright. Esau says this in verse 32 explicitly, and then he acts on it in verse 33. It says here, so he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Now, we really need to look at this in two ways. Generally speaking, a birthright was a very important thing in the ancient world. Okay? Generally speaking, a very significant asset, something to be prized, something to be highly valued. It meant? being over the family, and receiving a greater inheritance. So from a purely secular standpoint, just just take God out of it. From a purely secular standpoint, we would say that this attitude and act on Esau's part was short-sighted and foolish, right? Just take God out of it. A purely secular standpoint, short-sighted and foolish. This is stupid behavior, very foolish. If we were to have, say, 12 rules for life, this would probably be one of them. Don't be short-sighted. Don't be foolish. But this is no ordinary birthright. We know that. We've been swimming in those waters now for months. This is no ordinary birthright because this is no ordinary family. This is the family of Abraham, the family of promise. This is the family of cosmic redemptive significance. This is not just a birthright. And that makes Esau's words and actions all the more troubling. Which leads us now to verse 34 as we finish up this morning and we consider the conclusion. So we see the circumstance, the setup. Then we see the conversation that unfolds between Jacob and Esau and how this, how this helps us to get into their character and it ends ultimately in the selling of the birthright. And now we come to the conclusion. How ought we to process this little story? Verse 34, Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. You know, there are many times in biblical narrative where the author's assessment of the situation is not given. In fact, that's usually the case in narrative, right? You can go to a, 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 one of Paul's epistles 
And he will tell you exactly what the lesson is, what he's trying to teach you. And, and you can go through and you can see the imperatives. You can see the indicatives. What is truth? What is the case? You know, like the first half of Ephesians. God's salvation. This is what he's done. This is who he is. This is who you are. And then in the latter part, these imperatives that tell you, therefore, do this, do that. The significance of it, the, the moral weight of it is clear. It's emphatic. It's right on the surface. But frequently in narrative, you have to extract that. Like with Abraham and Sarah, for example, when, with the Hagar incident and even before, you have to extract it from what we read. Not the case here. The Holy Spirit, through the author Moses, is very explicit about the conclusion of this story. And he puts the spotlight on Esau's vice. Esau despised his birthright. What does that mean? It means that he treated what was precious as though it were nothing. The birthright in the chosen family is here sold for a bowl of lentil soup. I don't even like lentils unless they're in an Indian dish. This is just, these are just lentils. This is not even meaty stew. This doesn't even have any, any substance to it. It's just lentils in some red water and a crust of bread for a birthright in the family of the covenant people of God. The birthright in the chosen family is here sold for something of absolute unimportance. And the speed with which we are told that he eats and leaves tells us that this birthright of lasting value is traded for something that is utterly fleeting. This thing is something that he can sit, gulp down, get up, leave. That's it. It's gone. It's gone. That momentary pleasure, that little bit of satisfaction, now gone, fleeting like a puff of air. And the speed with which he eats and exits also shows that he is casual about the whole transaction. He doesn't fall on his face and say, what have I done? Now the soup is gone. I'm full and I've sold this precious thing. No, no, no. There's none of that with Esau here. He just gets up. He eats. He satisfies himself. And then he's out the door. So what do we do with this birthright story as we finish up today? Well, it's, it's wonderful when Old Testament stories get explained for us in the New Testament. That's one of the best ways for understanding Scripture. When, when they're specific, we saw that last week, right? Where the election of Jacob over Esau is explained and unpacked for us in Romans chapter 9. Well, fortunately for us, as we come to this text and try to figure out what do we do with it, we've got the writer of Hebrews who in chapter 12 verse 16 reflects on this story. He tells us what we should take away from it. He says, see to it that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. And I think this tells us at least two things. Two things this morning. First, these adjectives, sexually immoral and unholy, also could be translated godless or translated profane. You see that in the different translations. These adjectives, sexually immoral and unholy, show that Esau is an example, and hear this, 
of pleasure over piety, of gratification over God, of the earthly here, now the worldly, over the eternal. Feelings over faith, satisfaction over spirituality. Alan Ross explains it this way, the sacrificing of spiritual provisions for the satisfaction of physical appetites is what we see here with Esau. He is relinquishing eternal things for momentary pleasures. Get that, hear that. Sacrificing eternal, weighty, lasting things for momentary pleasures. Why in the world does the writer of Hebrews say anything about sexual immorality? This has to do with a bowl of soup. There's nothing sexual about this passage at all. It's because it's of the same category. This is the nature of sexual immorality. What you are doing when you click and go there on that screen is what Esau did that day. What we do when we in marriage begin to flirt with the idea of being with someone else is what Esau did here that day with that soup. Taking hold of something that's meaningless, momentary pleasure, fleeting, no weight, no glory, gone. And giving up, giving up much of lasting, lasting value. There's a reason why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6 that the sexually immoral will not inherit the kingdom of God. I think in our culture, we are too quick to say, I'm struggling with that. Struggle no more. Kill sin. Put sin to death now. 1 Corinthians 6, the sexually immoral will not inherit the kingdom of God. Look at Esau the next time you want to click. It also reminds us that living for today can destroy tomorrow. You know, our world says, follow your heart. Rubbish. Our world says, live for the moment. Rubbish. Live for today. No. Living for today destroys tomorrow. We live before the face of an eternal God. We don't live just for the the satisfactions of a moment, just taking hold of a moment. All those ridiculous Hallmark cards that we read and all of those silly t-shirts and all of those silly worldly, godless, demonic slogans that reflect more the ethos of hell than the ethos of heaven. Not true. Live for the glory of God with the end in view. As the Puritans would say, meditate on your death every day because it will come for you. And then you will be ready to die in faith, in hope, in Christ. And that reminds us, of course, that Christ is the only one who does not succumb. You see, the truth is we're all Esau's. Every single one of us is an Esau in truth. But Christ is not. What did Christ do when the Holy Spirit took him out into the wilderness and Satan came to him after 40 days of hunger? Jesus was starving. Truly, not Esau. Jesus was starving. And Satan said to him, turn these stones into bread. Feast yourself, Jesus. 
Go your own way, not the path of the Father. And Jesus says, no, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Christ said that in your stead. He did that in your stead, in your place. If you are a Christian, we are all Esau's. And without Christ in us, the hope of glory, we will die as Esau's. Godless, unholy, profane. We will die in our sins apart from this sin-bearing Savior. So we see that first. Second, we see that by using the word unholy, godless, or profane, the author of Hebrews is reminding us that Esau's actions are not those of faith. Now that's really important here. We have to end on this note. Because remember, remember the story of Abraham. That's the big story. So we looked at the specifics, what he's doing specifically there, what makes it godless and immoral. But now let's take a a zoom back out and let's remember the whole narrative of Genesis where faith is so important. Right before the author of Hebrews treats Esau, he's just given this whole chapter length discussion of the glory of faith, the glory of the people of God. As Kent Hughes says about Esau, he had little regard for the word of God and its promises. A birthright to godly Abraham meant nothing to him. The promises of God, the covenant of God, the future hope. Ah, I'm hungry. What is that? What is that to me? And the implication for us is that Jacob's actions, as conniving as they may be. Now hear this before you just too quickly throw Jacob under the bus. As conniving as they may be, are motivated by faith. That's the beauty that we see here. Esau, no faith. Jacob is motivated by faith. Esau's despising of what is weighty and valuable is contrasted with Jacob doing everything he can to have it. Even though it is conniving. For 15 years, Jacob grew up in the tents around his grandfather, Abraham. He knew the value of the birthright. He knew the value of the promises and the line. He knew that this was no ordinary family. And in faith, he desired what was of utmost importance. But as we finish up this morning, I want you to see something about Jacob. Jacob is a lot like Abraham and Sarah in this story. Faithful trust with foolish scheming, right? Jacob's not off the hook, right? We do see here the value of the birthright is what needs to be put in the spotlight. That's the focus. The birthright is swirling around in the air and one man has no care for it. And one man is doing everything he can to jump up and take hold of it and grab it. Very different hearts. But Jacob's not off the hook. We see here that he's doing everything he can in his own scheming to take hold of this. Just as Abraham and Sarah with Hagar, just as Abraham lying to Abimelech, lying to the Pharaoh and all the people in Egypt, just like Abraham, his grandfather, same stuff, prioritizing the right things, but trying to get there in the wrong way. Deficient faith for sure, but faith nonetheless. Faith in what is of lasting value. It matters how we live today and tomorrow and every day until the end. Will you take hold of what is momentary and fleeting? What in the end will prove to be nothing? 
Or will you take hold of eternal life through Christ Jesus? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for what you teach us here about faith, about the value of your promises, about the truthfulness of what you say. Father, would we be students of what you say, that we, in the moment of temptation, in Christ, standing firm in his strength, the full armor of God, that we would not lick up the momentary as a substitute for the eternal. Lord, how in disarray our families often are and our our, our lives because we live for that momentary bit of gratification. Father, would you help us look to Christ, the author and finisher of our faith? Would you help us stand firm in the power of his might and say, no, devil, I will take hold of eternal life. Father, help us. We are needy and we are empty without you. Fill us, Holy Spirit of God, that we would live unto Christ, that we would be conformed into his most perfect image, that we would dine with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and the great offspring, Christ himself, in the kingdom of God. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.